Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borrowdale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the beautiful lands wherever you're listening today. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who has been impacted by suicide, the pain it brings to our lives, and the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today's episode is all about living well in the first responder and emergency services workforces. And asking that all-important question, when it comes to suicide, how are we protecting the lives of those to protect ours? I'll be talking today with retired FBI agent and Living Works instructor, Agent Paul Bertrand. So welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Also joining in the conversation from the UK is Andy Chapman. Andy is a former police officer with many years of his 30-year policing career spent as a hostage negotiator, where he often negotiated at length with people planning to take their own lives. Andy's also a Safe Talk trainer and now the suicide prevention lead for the City of York. A warm welcome to you too, Andy. Thank you, Kim. It's good to be here. So in terms of both of your professions, the FBI, working as a hostage negotiator, I'm embarrassed to say that most of my knowledge of these two activities comes from watching crime dramas on TV. So I'm sure for my benefit and a lot of our listeners, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your professional background, the work that you've done in both of these organisations and the work you're doing today, and also just a bit about your why, how do you end up becoming a trainer or instructor and working in suicide prevention. So perhaps, Paul, we'll start with you. Tell us a bit more about your background. Okay. I spent approximately 21 years as an agent in the FBI, and I spent the last year as an instructor at the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia. During the time that I was an agent from 1998 until 2019, uh, when I was investigating cases, I investigated white collar crimes, specifically like securities fraud, investment frauds, bank fraud, mortgage fraud, that sorts of thing. And then when I, I moved from Los Angeles, which was my first office over to the East Coast and um, took some jobs at the FBI Academy. And from there, the last four and a half years of my career, I spent as a regional program manager in the uh, employee assistance program for the FBI. And that's specifically where I got into uh, the world of suicide intervention. Thank you very much, Paul. That's a great introduction. We'll come back to a few of those experiences shortly. But first, if we could just hear from you, Andy, about your personal and professional backgrounds and how you got into this line of work. Yeah, I joined the police service at the age of 19 as a very unworldly, naive young man, knowing nothing, really. I realise now 
And as any police officer would um, testify, the types of incidents we attended as a uniformed response officer are very varied and, and sometimes very traumatic. And I grew up very quickly as a result of that, that role. I attended many incidents of sudden death, many incidents of people in distress, an awful lot of policing, even in those days, related to mental ill health and crisis management and the need for us to work in partnership with lots of other services and indeed with the person themselves. So I had a very broad, very quick experience of um, suicide and suicidal ideation and very quickly connected with people who were bereaved by suicide by, by giving death messages to people, loved ones. And obviously that's part of the policing role in any case. But the police service deals with death, unfortunately. It's part of the role. And it was, um, you know, not a prominent part of the role in terms of suicide, but it was quite occasional. I remember the first incident I went to as a 19-year-old, and that will stay with me forever. But throughout the course of my career, I became... Other than the response officer, I was a family liaison officer, so I was deployed to bereave families to support investigations and support families who were, who were going through the very worst of times. And then later in, in service, on being promoted a couple of times, I became a, a, a hostage negotiator, crisis intervention negotiator, trained in Hendon at the Metropolitan Police. And negotiating techniques are shared very much with the USA and Australia. We have very similar models. We train together. I know some of my former colleagues have attended the FBI course. And negotiation ultimately is about listening. It's about communicating, very similar to Living Works models and the training that we deliver with Living Works now about compassionate, person-centered approaches. So on retirement, in back in 2015, I didn't really have a plan. I'd served 30 years. And then a role came up with the health service within the locality of suicide prevention lead. I didn't know there was such a role. In fact, there wasn't prior to them advertising that role in line with a national strategy to reduce suicide within the UK. And that involved a public health approach to suicide prevention, which was very new to public health as well. But to start with, much of it was relating to an audit of coroner's files. So myself and colleagues reviewed, examined, scrutinized many files that I was familiar with as a police officer but obviously looking at it through a, a different lens and trying to work out what the demographics were, what the antecedents were, what the lifestyle causes and triggers were, what contact people had had with services prior to taking their own lives. And that was a fascinating, if not difficult, experience to look at those files on paper and to try and piece together the lives of individuals who had reached a conclusion that suicide in their view was their only option. And that really inspired me to be more involved. I've had an awful lot of um, involvement with bereaved families, with people who are at risk or have had episodes of suicide ideation themselves, and to try and put together a jigsaw, because it really is a jigsaw, to work out how we can save lives through better understanding and knowledge of what those individuals have been through and what the triggers were and what the pressures were. And that's resulted in me working in York now, which is a part-time role where I... Try and put lived experience at the heart of everything we do. It's that we've got a strategy, we've got a plan, but actually hearing the stories for most people who are either bereaved by suicide or those who have had their own thoughts of suicide and, and more importantly, who've come out the other side, most of whom have recovered. And I try and put hope right the way through. Stories of hope, stories of people's adversity, but actually coming out the other side and realise that life is worth living is what we try and deliver. So 
it's all about partnership working. It's all about everybody bringing their skills and expertise and experience to the table and working together. And that's what our plan is about alongside the training, which is where Living Works comes in, of course, because training, education and knowledge and understanding are crucial. And that's where I am now. I use my police background, along with what I've learned in the last five years, to encourage and to influence partners to take suicide seriously. And most importantly, probably, is to try and tackle the stigma, which is a huge barrier to progress and a huge barrier to people's recognition that everyone has a part to play, which is a a key Living Works message, of course. And so interesting that listening to you talk, the skills that you needed to use in your policing career and hostage negotiation, you know, trying to understand, trying to figure out and see what's going on with people who are in these vulnerable situations. It's really interesting to hear about your career coming that full circle. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and Paul, what about in the early days of your career in the white collar crime area and things like that? Did you... Was mental health and suicide topics that came up in that area of work or what sort of things did you come across in that environment in relation to stresses and how the mental health of that sort of work? It's interesting. Uh, oddly enough, white collar criminals, those are people that primarily let greed take over and they steal money in one form or another. And they're really not the type of people who have ever thought of themselves as going to prison. And so when people who uh, commit white collar crimes get caught, oftentimes they find themselves vastly unprepared. So suicide becomes an option for them relatively quickly. And I, I don't know the difference in suicide rates between violent criminals and white collar criminals, but I do know that white collar criminals kill themselves surprisingly often. I think by the time an investigator has investigated white collar crimes for a while, they know of people, of criminal subjects in the white collar crimes who have killed themselves or who have attempted suicide. And it usually happens sometime before sentencing. So they'll make it to the point where they're found guilty, but they won't make it to their sentencing. They're so scared of going to prison that they'll decide to uh, take their own lives. In both of your professions, There's the mix between the mental health training and suicide prevention training that you get for your profession to then work with people in the community and work on the cases that you work with. So it's sort of that outward facing. So you're dealing with other people who are experiencing suicidal behaviour. Then you have the flip side of managing your own mental health and perhaps the suicidal thoughts of yourselves, your colleagues, and dealing with the stresses of that type of job. So What across the years have you seen in terms of training in both of your organisations or, as you said earlier, Andy, stigma? Have you seen a difference in the balance of those two areas? So what sort of approach there's been for both you as professionals working outwards, but also the workplace care of your own mental health? Andy, do you remember when you first started, maybe not when you were 19, I can't imagine the... um, Uh, level of training at that time but do you remember when it started being something of more of a conversation or did you always have debriefing processes with those incidents? The police service in the UK went through different phases of recognising the impact of trauma and struggled with it for some time. I I don't think in the early days when I was dealing with such incidents there was any real debrief. You relied on your colleagues and maybe a supervisor 
And of course, that varied according to individuals. But over those earlier years, there was the introduction of welfare departments. There was the introduction of debrief or what they called diffusion, which was a group peer-led or facilitated group session to discuss an incident, to discuss a traumatic scene or investigation. And that, of course, with police officers received very varied responses. Some were very engaged, some quite the opposite. In fact, some people reported that it had a detrimental effect on their health, that they were otherwise able to compartmentalise issues or, or incidents or scenes, and then to revisit them in a group setting where they didn't feel quite comfortable. So the organisation evolved, really, over a period of time, and it's changed how it's reflected quite a number of times. And there's always been a recognition that it's important to talk about incidents, to have a shared and safe space. And sometimes whether or not people engage, it's down to their own personality, how they deal with it. I saw on many occasions officers, particularly traffic officers or detective sergeants, for example, who routinely went to very serious traumatic incidents. And they disengaged often from any support that was offered. It might have been cultural, but feeling that they didn't need it, that they had dealt with it in their own way. And then we saw over the years, I saw the cumulative effect on people late in service who had never sought the support, who'd never engaged with that support, didn't think it was for them. And then you saw the damage cause, you know, 25 years service, 28 years service, where that perpetual attendance at incidents and not dealing with it, not talking about it, not not accepting what it was and the impact it can have on you, that caused catastrophic consequences for some individuals who ended up not being able to fulfil their full service, who had to leave on ill health, who had significant mental health issues arising really from trauma. And I think maybe the experts have only quite recently realised the impact of trauma on the well-being, even if it's remote, even if it's something you attend as a responder, not a personal trauma. The line between the two is very vague because something that is happening to other people suddenly happens to you when you attend that incident and you're part of it and you're involved in it. So I think this is still a work in progress for many services across police service, ambulance service, fire service across the world, certainly in the UK, is that there's a real recognition but the culture and the, I dare say, male-dominated environments are not helpful, I'm afraid, because of the machismo that is related to some roles and the fact that we're police, we should be able to deal with that. We're emergency services, that's what we do. And even from my own experience, I shared that culture, I shared that attitude for a long time. And it wasn't really until I trained to be a negotiator and I, I became more self-aware. You know, emotional intelligence is something you can't just learn other than through your mistakes. But emotional intelligence is vitally important. And to have more reflective training where you can see how you perform, how others perceive you, your language and your attitude to all sorts of things, including yourself, is so important. And self-awareness and uh, emotional intelligence improve when you learn how to communicate with somebody more effectively. So negotiated training is about person-centered approach. It's about compassion. It's about leaving the uniform behind and being the, the authentic you, which in a police service is very difficult to do, to be the authentic you. And it took me quite a long time to be that authentic person on a, on a bridge, on a risk location, because you, you have authority, you have a persona, you have an ego from the role that you do. And the people in crisis can see through that. And it's not until you become the individual, the person, 
that you build a rapport and it's that rapport with somebody that is so vital in saving their life on a particular occasion and later in due course. And that's important within the service and outside the service. You know, if you've got a good level of emotional intelligence within a group of people and you're able to share feelings in a safe environment and know that others are feeling the same way as you, then it's much more helpful than to think that you're unique, that you're responding differently, that something that's affected you, why isn't affecting my mates? Why am I losing sleep at night over that incident and nobody else seems to be? Well, actually, we're all human. We all deal with things in different ways. And actually, those people probably are struggling with it, but just don't like to say, because that's our culture. And we just go to the next incident and the next job and the next job and the next job. And it's that cumulative effect it can cause real damage unless you acknowledge it and perhaps do something about it sooner rather than later, I think. So things are improving rapidly, I think. We're not quite there yet, but some of the reason for that is that officers themselves are not quite ready for it. They're a little bit indoctrinated and they're not quite prepared to do feelings. And that's that's the difference in what I am now to what I was like five or ten years ago, is that I'm much better at feelings and expressing them and not feeling embarrassed about being tearful or being stressed or being you know affected by something that i've encountered and that takes experience and self-awareness absolutely and what about paul in the fbi you spent a lot of years working in the eap uh, employee assistance program did you experience and did you hear about a similar response to trauma and the stresses of that sort of role and what can you tell us about the environment as a culture, what it was like when you were working there, how it's changed over the years? Is it a similar situation to what you see in the police force and what Andy's been talking about with the traumatic experiences, the on-the-job culture, you striving to get that job done, you've got a very structured work environment. Is that similar in your experience? For, uh, very similarly to what Andy was saying we have seen things change over the years. First of all, in the FBI, agents learn how to interview people, but they don't necessarily learn any sort of mental health tricks or how to deal with suicidal people per se. The only people that would formally get that training would be our negotiators as well. And um, oddly enough, just on a side note, since we brought assist and safe talk to the FBI from LivingWorks, our negotiators have been coming to the assist training quite a bit in large part. And the training does marry up very well with what they had been getting. It's just that some are finding the, um, the assist steps even easier to implement and to, um, to use than the, the training that they had had before. But with that said, the FBI does respond to pretty much all of the mass casualty events in the United States and, and actually over around the world, um, different bombings and such. But anytime there's a mass shooting or a mass casualty, the FBI will go and will end up being the people that actually process that scene for days or weeks on end. And so we do expose people to every horrific crime scene that you can imagine as well as some pretty horrific investigations. And some people go through it for years without necessarily having any visible impacts. And it is interesting kind of going back to what Andy was saying 
all of a sudden, maybe they'll come across a scene, like one scene that's coming to my mind, you know, something people don't think about is these agents and the other professional staff live in these communities where they end up investigating a lot of times. So whenever a personal connection is made, and it doesn't matter what it is, but any any sort of personal connection that the investigator internalizes between something they're seeing and something in their own lives, we notice that really tends to make an impact on them. I'll give you a, as an example, it might be possible to process, say, all the debris of a plane crash with no worries whatsoever. But then all of the sudden, when you're opening up all of the luggage and inside the luggage, you happen to see the same size of clothes that your children at home wear. It's that personal connection that can bring out that adverse reaction. And so through the years in the FBI, we've tried to get better and better and better at our response from an employee assistance perspective for our own employees. So now we actually have a system in place where during these responses to these mass casualties or these crime scenes, what have you, while the investigators are investigating the crime scene and gathering evidence and processing everything, the employee assistance program is actually there. I like to say kind of in the next tent over and they're keeping an eye and offering psychological first aid to everyone who's there through the days or weeks, however long it may take. And that centers on a lot of things like physical comfort and safety and helping make sure things are taken care of on the home front, making sure that food and coffee is there. And of course, lending a listening ear. And then after the uh, operational phase is over is now when we've really gotten into what we call the crisis intervention program. And that's where we will actually send a team and we'll offer a psychoeducational meeting for all the employees that were involved in a particular scene first. And then we'll break them into different groups and we'll have different process groups led by licensed clinicians that will go through. The different groups will be people who were similarly exposed because we found out that we could vicariously expose people by getting our groups wrong. If we put people that hadn't been exposed to a particular tragedy in with people who had exposed it. So now we're very meticulous as far as getting the right people into the right process groups. And then we offer individual counseling and follow up as well. And so as far as the mass casualty type events, we have a pretty thorough system in place now. We're not quite there yet as far as the individual mental health of employees, you know, during their careers. Like Andy said, there there is quite a stigma among employees. And the stigma in the FBI is made worse, of course, for a couple of reasons. One, we have the normal fitness for duty reasons that agents never quote unquote, want to lose their gun for not, you know, being mentally healthy. And then on top of that, we have our national security clearances. And there's the stigma that, oh my gosh, if I express that I might be having trouble with my mental health, it could affect my ability to keep a clearance. And so we're working hard to overcome both of those because the FBI believes wholeheartedly 
that it's much better for employees to get the mental health help that they need rather than not to. It's just that convincing the employees sometimes is uh, a little bit difficult. And so that's where that's where different programs like Assist and Safe Talk come in. Well, I love that the EAP is the next tent along. That's a really smart approach to it. And um, I'm sure people welcome that change. I talked recently to some veterans and retired service people from the military, and they talked a lot about the strengths that they got from that particular work environment and team environment. In your workplaces, what sort of things do you think works in the favour of first responders and police environments and the strengths that people can draw on in those workplaces when it comes to mental health and resilience? Paul? The post-traumatic growth is a real thing. And over time, in my experience, what I've seen is most people develop resilience over time in, in addition to the normal factors of resilience that they bring with them. Exposure to traumatic events does help build resilience and people get better at it. It doesn't take away the damage of the one scene where I said uh, maybe makes a connection with a person. But generally, over time, you can see that the people who have been exposed to traumatic events through the years generally are very resilient and very healthy, very strong. And they do tend to look out for the younger ones as well. You will see like an older employee may notice when someone younger or newer to it gets a little look in their eyes. You can tell maybe when they're being bothered by something. And those people will take them and offer help and let them know that they are normal and what they're going through is expected for the situation that they've been put in. And then they are getting better at about trusting the process too and helping people get to where the professionals are that they can talk to. Absolutely. Regardless of the pressure of the position, everyone still is a human being underneath. So it's great to hear that that mentoring works in your organization. And Andy, what would you say are the the strengths and the protective factors that you see in the police? Well, I think it's actually about being part of something which you could put in any organization, probably, and in any society or culture. But being in the emergency service, being part of the police family, as we would call it, being part of the FBI family or the emergency or an ambulance family, being part of something really helps, even particularly if you're dealing with something that is stressful or is, is for the greater good. So the police service brings with it a pride of doing your best, of doing stuff that the general public have just got no clue, really, what police officers deal with. And, and I would say the same for other emergency services, but my experience is police. And they would just be appalled by what the police officer routinely faces in terms of behaviour towards them, in terms of level of aggression, in terms of the unlawful behaviour of others, of course, the trauma that we've talked about. But knowing that you're part of the service, part of a team, part of a wider organisation, but more importantly, it's part of a small group on a shift pattern, working as a band or a team or whatever you call it, a section. And this idea of being in this together, we've been to this together, we've responded to that, we've put a bad person away, we've arrested a bad person, we've helped a good person in very unfortunate circumstances. We've done a job that 
had to be done as distasteful it is. That idea brings you together as a team and that connectedness is so important to feel that I'm not on my own. And, and you can leave at the end of the shift knowing that even when you get home and try and talk it through, if you feel that way with family or friends, they will never understand what you've been through, which is why the police service is so close, because all you need to do is pick up a phone or go in on the next night shift, and you're there amongst people that you went to that incident with the day before, and now you're putting yourself up there to go to the next one and the next one. And that's why police, because we work shifts, we socialise together. You know, the police service generally works hard and plays hard, and that, in some ways, is a different story, and that can add risk as well, of course, in that playing hard. But in terms of connectedness, in terms of resilience, like Paul said, going to more and more incidents does make you more resilient. It can have the impact of actually being detrimental to your health long term. But one thing that shocks you one day in six months' time or in six years' time when you go to something similar won't be quite the shock, won't be quite of the same effect. It might keep you awake for a day instead of keeping you awake for a week because you're getting used to it. And one of the difficulties is you never become complacent. You never become desensitized. But actually something happens to you that says, yeah, this is what we do. This is what we deal with. If I collapse, if I can't cope with this, then who else is going to do with it? And you do the door knock and you pick up the pieces of a traumatic incident and you just get on with it. And whether you put your own thoughts aside while you deal with that and then experience those later, might be the case, but being part of something. And we know from the Living Works modules and from the work that I do, that being part of something, feeling part of a community, feeling like you belong, feeling like you have a purpose, is such a protective factor, whatever the context. And as soon as you lose that, as soon as you lose some sense of self and worthlessness, then you lose some of your own strength. And that can be really damaging. That can inevitably present risk factors. So. That's what I would say. You're part of a service. You're serving the public. You've got authority and the public puts their trust in you. And that in itself brings strength. And as soon as some of that is undermined, then it can cause risk to officers as it can to anybody else. So really important to be that sense of who you are and, and your contribution to society and the work that you're doing. Hey, just following up on something you said there, Andy. As far as that sense of belonging and losing that, something we're just starting to take a look at, which is is kind of fascinating to me, is the whole idea of the effect of um, adverse childhood experiences on agents and, and law enforcement in particular, and that feeling that the way that people grew up with those adverse experiences affects their developing that role of protector or guardian and getting into law enforcement as a field in the first place. And so I know in the FBI, we have plenty of instances of people who did have those adverse childhood experiences and did come into the FBI and they spend their entire adult lives protecting people and investigating crimes and keeping people safe. And then as they get older towards the end of their career, we are finding too that a lot of those issues, even left over from way back in childhood, have never been dealt with. And as that end of that career comes, that sense of what Andy was just saying of um, losing that belonging, it brings all of that old stuff back up to the surface as well. And so, like I said, we're just starting to take a look at that and to try to 
even figure out ways to address it, but it would definitely be worthwhile to take advantage of the time when people are members of that law enforcement team and they do have that camaraderie and that belonging before it's that time to retire and where they lose that part of their identity and are left not only navigating a, a career end or a career change, but also the loss of their group and still having unresolved issues from their past that they never dealt with. That's really interesting, starting to address some of those issues while they're in that protective environment. So you're going into the transition points in a more protected fashion. Speaking of transition points, what about your transitions out of active service into other roles, you personally, which you don't necessarily need to tell me the details of, but is there work actually in your fields to help people with that transition from that active team out into other roles or retirement? Well, retirement is is a particularly significant issue, I think, for me. And my service traditionally has a pre-retirement course two or three years before retirement, which unfortunately is not a great model because it's centered around finance and they bring a finance company in how to use your pension and how to invest in this and buy to pay your mortgage. I think really they could focus more on the emotional impact because there's no doubt that there's a real wrench when you leave a service. You that Culturally within my service is this attitude of counting down the days, which I don't think people actually do. But as soon as you join, people ask you how many years have you got to do? Almost like it's a, a life sentence. I've only got 18 to do. I've only got 12 to do. And I never did that. I made a point of, you know, I enjoyed, I love my my service and I miss it now with a yearning, which has really surprised me. And actually really surprises my current colleagues who are, who are currently in the service who are saying, how could you miss this? But they don't know what they will miss and how much they will miss certain elements of it. Certainly not all elements, of course. But I think we need to be very careful with retirement as well. The armed services in the UK have a much better glide path towards that end of service date in terms of skills, in terms of support, in terms of accommodation. And yet the police service, it just seems to be a cliff edge. You have a leaving do and then you're gone and you might keep in touch with colleagues or you might not. And you might go back into a role which is very similar. In some ways, I recognise in myself that I've gone into this role because I'm missing the police service, that there's an element of providing support and making a difference and improving training but actually it is a real risk any element of transition whatever life phase you're at causes change and change can make us all more anxious and more stressed we like the familiar even if the familiar is traumatic at times and then suddenly to be not belonging to be looking outside of a service into it not being part of that family in the same way is very important and that's the case not just for police service for any organization where people are looking at retirement. I think the added extras for me, if I look at the personal side of it, towards the end of my service, I had some issues around anxiety. And some of that was definitely post-trauma related, definitely, because I I had flashbacks and and particular incidents. But also there was an element of dropping the ball, an element of you're carrying risk all the time. I was in a management role where I was looking at safeguarding and risk management constantly, making decisions constantly about the safety of other individuals and the deployment of resources. Inevitably, when you're looking at a police pension and a police retirement, you're looking at a rosy view and think, oh, the culture is that, oh, look, once retirement happens, life will be wonderful and harmonious. But actually, 
in between then and before that is a time when you might drop the ball, you might make a significant error and life might be at risk or disciplinary proceedings might occur or you might have made a significant mistake which, which will change your future. And, you know, I recognised an element of catastrophic thinking within my psyche in those years before I finished, I think caused by trauma that I dealt with years before. And I still carry that catastrophic thinking now. It's still, I have to check myself and think, this is not you thinking this, this is those thoughts. And you, because I've got that level of self-awareness to try and dismiss them or at least manage them, I can deal with it. But if you're stressed and you're dealing with something that is so difficult and it's down to your decision, then that can be a very difficult position to be in and can cause you, not in my case, suicidal thoughts, but certainly high anxiety levels, which in turn reduce your performance and make you more likely to make a mistake. So we are all a product of our experiences. And for the most part, I'm very grateful for mine. It was a privilege to be a police officer, but it certainly caused some real damage that it wasn't until I started to unravel it and had some EMDR intervention, for example, that specifically looked at some of the trauma incidents that I'd been involved with, that I realised what damage had been caused and how I could better manage that. Because we float through life, assuming certainly early on in our service that we're untouchable, we're Teflon, nothing will affect us. The same as teenagers too, but actually that can continues into young and service police officers that they think, I'm Superman, Superwoman, I can do this. And it's not until something hits you like a ton of bricks that you realise that, like you said, we're human and we have feelings and uh, we're not invulnerable. So yeah, transition periods, whatever role or retirement, or if you go into a new job where you're not quite as competent as you hoped you might be, you can have those underlying effects that you hopefully recognise at the time but might not do until later. Um, Paul, in terms of the transition, so retirement or coming out of service, what about those other changes in life that Andy was saying, you know, the different points? How do you manage with FBI agents going out to different assignments or maybe similar to the police having irregular hours or different jobs that might go over long periods of time? How do you manage the support system outside the workforce? Do you have processes in place or offer training and support to families and carers and the people around the agent? So I would say a little bit would be the answer to that. And that is that we do offer the employee assistance program, I guess you'd call them psychological services, to family members as well as to the employees. So that, for instance, um, spouses, children, parents, brothers, sisters, that are all eligible to receive the same sorts of counseling and mental health services that everyone else is. And, and some people do take advantage of that. But, you know, one thing, if I, to follow up on something Andy said that I thought was very important, it relates directly to the emotional health of law enforcement. And, you know, during the job, most law enforcement personnel do get into their job and they love their job. And and so you might say that they're on a high while they're at work. And then when they go home at night, maybe they're not on that high anymore. Maybe in fact, they get in the house and then sit in the chair and then watch the TV and then maybe, you know, have a few drinks. And maybe they start to get into a cycle 
And you can see where the job never really suffers because they like it, but all of that outside stuff might suffer a lot. Maybe all of a sudden they find themselves after a few years not engaging in nearly all of the activities that they used to engage in before they were in law enforcement or when they were young. And it, it becomes this roller coaster of going to work and then going home and unloading. And what people don't necessarily realize is that all of those other outside relationships suffer and all of the other people in their lives will move on. They will fill that time doing other things. And so then, like you said, when separation and retirement come and you take away all the highs of that roller coaster, and now all of a sudden there are no lows because all of those people are filling their time doing other things, it really can be catastrophic. But in the FBI, we have the similar thing where there's a meeting a couple of years out and it is mostly centered on finance. And then we do have, you know, different organizations like organizations of retired special agents or that. And they, they do their thing, like, you know, having monthly meetings and having newsletters and the rest. But I think there could be an awful lot more work devoted to the emotional impacts of retirement especially given the topic we're talking about today. And, and we do have, you know, a number of suicides among retired personnel. So we talk about the stresses and the risk factors and some of the strengths. In terms of suicide prevention training specifically and building that capacity within your organizations, within your county, what do you think is working well? So tell me some good news stories about the things that you've seen over the past several years that are really making a difference and what you'd like to see more of in these environments. Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm using lived experience. I put lived experience at the heart of the work that we do. I've made an awful lot of contacts with people who are either bereaved by suicide or have had their own thoughts and their own experiences of suicidal attempts. And I've used those stories to great effect in a conference that we've held for the last four years. We've had last year's conference was um, around 160 people attending and often lived experience is used as a bit of a token gesture. You'll have academics and clinicians and senior management talking at a conference and then occasionally they'll bring somebody in with a lived experience of suicidal thoughts or bereavement or mental Ill health and the audience recognises that it's simply a token gesture. It's one 20-minute example at the end of a full day where I've turned that on its head and I've used it lived experience even before I retired I brought in a young lady who'd been talked off a bridge not by a negotiator but by a uniformed officer and she had significant uh, history of self-harm and psychosis and I invited her in to talk to my chip in a safe environment she came with her mental health worker who, but she didn't want them in the room and she spoke to my team of about a dozen, 15 officers about her experiences, about the scars on her arms, about her tattoos, about her experiences of being arrested, some very bad, but some awfully good. She, she credited the police with saving her life on a couple of occasions, but then a sentence later said how appalling she'd been treated once she'd arrived in custody. So everybody's experience of the police is different. And those with mental ill health have had some particularly difficult times with the police, even though Often the police are the only people that will intervene. And like I say, she she acknowledged that the police had literally saved her life. So I, I put lived experience there as much as I possibly can because I think there's so much for us to learn 
And including myself, I, I've learned an awful lot by hearing people's accounts. And I try, even when I'm delivering safe talk, I'm not an assist trainer, I'm a safe talk trainer. And, and I find there's so much disclosure from people in a room after half an hour of ice building and, and you know, a co-trainer talking. The people are very keen to disclose, and it, I find it particularly validating to have somebody at the back of the room nodding and grinning about what I'm saying, validating what I'm saying about we must talk about suicide, we must talk about difficult conversations and ask directly. And it's so important to have that in every room, as there always is. I've used Safe Talk a lot. I've, I've encouraged people in the police service to attend assist as well. I would never mandate training like that it would always have to be to the, the link people who want to attend the training i have tried to deliver training to a group of police officers and a third of them will sit there arms folded as if you can't talk to me about feelings i know this i know about suicide the other two thirds are more engaged more open-minded and those are the people i like to reach really and it's been you know in my view very successful i've had some great feedback from people who've done safe talk and then gone on to do assist and found it really valuable at the moment in the absence of face-to-face training I'm, I'm offering the start program from living works as well which i think is really helpful as well and it's encouraged more and more conversation so my role is actually about partnership working it's about multi-agency approaches about accessing mental health services and physical health services and voluntary sector and the police and the emergency services and of course, with a police background, I've tried to encourage as many uniformed and or police officers as possible to attend the training. And for the most part, they've enjoyed it. They found it very valuable. I had a couple of negotiators go on it, trained negotiators, who said it was a different perspective. And it is. It's, it's similar to negotiate training, but it's, but it's more specific. So a combination of training alongside lived experience and much more close to working in partnership, sharing information, really sums up our strategy for our city. We need to talk more openly about suicide. We need to encourage people to take the training because the stigma that we mentioned at the outset of this discussion is crippling us. People do not want to talk about suicide. They don't want to go there. They're reluctant to do that in relation to their clients if they're frontline operational. They're even more reluctant to do that in relation to their own loved ones. It's often too painful for them. They can't contemplate the fact that their loved one might be at risk. And therefore, the more we talk about it, the more we change language. You know, one of my big bugbears within the UK, and I don't know that's the same, Paul, in the US, is, is the term commit. People using the, associating the term commit with suicide, which in the UK was, um, you know, is irrelevant since 1961. We had a Suicide Act legislator which said it's not a crime to take your own life. And yet we continue to perpetuate stigma by using the term commit which is associated with crime and bereaved families in particular really object to using the term commit i've I've heard a a senior coroner talk at a big conference and several times he used he used the phrase commit suicide and after his talk there was a queue of people wanting to lining up to talk to him to challenge his language and saying you really must update your language and phraseology because you you just you're just perpetuating the stigma, which is one of the big reasons why people don't feel inclined to open up and seek help when they need it. So it is, uh, it's been fascinating to see the police service from outside the service as a partner agency. And I, I see some of the can-do attitudes within the police 
taking other services with them. We're doing this. If you want to come with us, then by all means, but we're the police, we're going to do this. But it's been a really interesting journey to see attitudes to suicide now that I've been on the other side, effectively, and how language, phraseology, because I think a lot of suicide prevention is about attitudes. It's attitudinal, changing attitudes, changing changing our approach, being more compassionate and actually working with the person rather than working or doing something to the person. I, I think that's the basic principle of assist, isn't it? And the other living works models that we work in collaboration with people. We don't just do it to them, we do it with them. Hopefully you're both in agreement. Absolutely. I love that you, um, you're you experiencing both sides. So York's very lucky that you've got that experience in the police, but then, as you say, it must be fascinating to see it from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And Paul, what about you? What's working well? What do you want to see more of in your environment? You know, I say a lot to a lot of different audiences that the difference between someone who's thinking of suicide and someone who's not thinking of suicide is a thought. And people have thoughts all the time. And I don't think people are willing to even be honest that they've had thoughts of many different things. And I try to always put it in terms that people would really understand. Like, for instance, we hear a lot that maybe one out of 20 people is contemplating suicide in any time period. But that sounds like, okay, my odds of being the one in 20 are rather small. And maybe even the odds of me knowing the one in 20 are rather small. But when we take a look at an organization by size and figure out how many people that is, it can be really eye-opening. So for instance, the FBI has almost 36,000 people in it. Well, if only one in 20 are contemplating suicide at any given time, that comes out to about 1,800 people. And when I say, hey, there's a good chance we have 1,800 people wandering around the FBI, at least thinking of suicide, you can see the eyes in the room really open up. And so for the last um, several years, we've really been trying to change our approach a little bit in the FBI towards suicide. Um, we have had a suicide prevention initiative going for years, which consisted of things like posters in all the common areas looking for, you know, warning signs and risk factors and that and where to get help. We've had speakers come in through the years, emails sent by the executives to the workers, you know, like normal things you might associate. And my own feeling on that, and now a feeling that I think has become more accepted in the FBI, is that people generally don't kill themselves in the clinician's office. Where the people are actively suicidal is where they are. And so we've really changed our focus to try to get people trained in suicide intervention to where the people are in the squad spaces. Like Andy said, hanging out outside of work. We want people to be part of every gathering that are trained in suicide intervention. So they're more likely to see those invitations and take that first step and know how to intervene. What I notice in the FBI is that before people are trained, they want to avoid the topic more than anything else. Um, the last thing they want to do is get involved in a conversation with someone who might be looking, you know, out of sorts. And so through bringing suicide intervention training, specifically safe talk and assist to the workforce, 
we feel like we're surrounded with very smart, very capable, very hardworking people who devote their lives to helping others. All we need to do is give them the training to be the eyes and ears and the helpers in the field. And then they can worry about getting the people thinking of suicide to where the clinicians are and where the long-term help is more as part of their safety plan. It, it always drives me crazy when there are suicides and the management's first response of an organization might be to hire another counselor or two. And I keep thinking like, okay, that's nice, but wouldn't it be a better use of resources to train the people that are where the people that need the help are all the time so that they can get them to those mental health type resources? And so we, we've taken on kind of an aggressive posture in the FBI lately. Our, our goal is to train a thousand employees in assist each year and 1,500 employees in safe talk. And we're in our third year now of the assist training. So far, it's going very well. The, the anecdotal stories we get back are, are huge. It's inevitable that every class within a few months, people are emailing the teachers and telling the stories of when they use the assist um, outside of the classroom. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be delighted. We, our numbers in terms of our service in North Yorkshire are, are much lower than that, of course, but I'd be delighted to get that, that sort of ratio trained. If you've got that buy-in from senior management, recognizing the value of assist, I, I would stand on the, we have a minster, York Minster. I would stand on the roof of the minster and shout, Please get these, your staff trained in assist. But even Safe Talk, the conversations I have with people in Safe Talk are really valuable. Yeah, go on, Paul. Sorry. Oh, you know, I was just going to tell you, Andy, what worked for us is really targeting the decision makers who hold the purse strings and actually inviting them to attend. <laughs> And once I had executives start to attend the programs, they became cheerleaders for it and started saying, like, now we have to get this implemented. Before they attended, they might say things like, well, why can't our employee assistance program just put together a suicide prevention program? Yeah. And like, they just didn't have an understanding of what a professional intervention class, a certification can actually do. And it's different than hearing someone talk about suicide awareness for an hour. Yeah. Like while both are helpful, one is definitely skills building. And, and that's, that's where we've started to shift our approach. Yeah, well, that's, that's really helpful. I found that is that they give the training on, on emotional well-being or mental health or even suicide. They give it to a training team who are, are used to picking up a package and saying, right, go and prepare something and then deliver it. And, of course, you've got to have the knowledge and understanding and the, the resilience to be able to deliver that. But you inadvertently are becoming a cheerleader for me because I'm going to quote those three letters, FBI. The FBI are training a 1,000 people a year in assist. I'll definitely be using that. The FBI has, of course, got an international reputation, and I'll certainly pick up on that because, you know, I would train all emergency services or a third of them in assist and a lot more in safe talk because it's about emotional intelligence, as I said before, and the opportunity to have those conversations. I find it much easier in a multidisciplinary workforce, in a multi-agency group, training 
30 police officers in one go, I, I would find very difficult training two or three or four police officers amongst ambulance, mental health workers, drug and alcohol workers, youth workers, teachers. People are more able to disclose and share than if they are in a room with their colleagues or with their managers. And I think that's one of the beauties of ASSIST is that if you train a multi-agency group that doesn't really know each other, after two days, of course, they get to know each other really well, but they get other people's perspectives, which is so valuable. So, yeah, I do. I was just going to say that if the FBI leadership teams and decision makers can make time for training, then I'm sure every organisation in the world yeah, can probably absolutely. get their leadership team to make time. One trick to it of having success is, you know, we don't have unlimited money and, you know, somebody like me doesn't have any money. So I, I actually have to do a lot of convincing, right? We, we do in order to get budgets. And we're always approving things a year out and all of that, the regular government red tape. One thing we did that was immensely helpful was to train our own in-house trainers. Yeah. And so yeah. we spent, we have a small army of 16 assist trainers that we train through living works in the FBI and 10 safe talk trainers. And so we use those people to teach that way. Each trainer only has to teach, you know, three to five classes per year and the safe talk trainers, maybe five classes per year. And we, we get our numbers. It definitely, you just have to look for ways to save budget, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to deliver across across our city is a more multi-agency. Some people come already skilled, some people don't have had no experience or very limited experience about having a conversation. I'm always astounded how long it takes us to convince professionals in certain roles to actually use the word suicide, how they shy away from it. They want to use euphemisms, they want to use anything but the actual word. And it, you know, it's amazing how half a day's training can change attitudes and some of the feedback that the course receives is just you think well why wouldn't you train staff in this what else would you prioritize and the police service i do find some resistance because they're saying that's not our role that's not our job there are other social services or mental health professionals but like we said at the start naturally the police encounter mental ill health and, and crisis and people in distress routinely they are the frontline staff who are generally going to their incidents. And whilst they would argue that their role is at prevention of crime and public safety, more and more of their role is about mental ill health. And the more that society becomes fractured, the more that social services are reducing capacity because of finance and now more recently because of COVID, the more police officers are attending these person distress or person vulnerable incidents. And if they don't have the communication skills and the right attitude, that can be really dangerous because there might be one opportunity to reach somebody, one opportunity to ask the question of somebody that others might not have. So I think it's vitally important that we reach the police services. Interestingly enough, there is a national move now within the police service to reduce suicide amongst its ranks and files. We know, we recognise, similar to what we've seen in New York, that there are higher numbers of police service suicides and there might be something about the culture, there might be something about the trauma that people are dealing with, and there is now a national appetite to actually look at this more holistically and work on a strategy. It's, I think it's early days, but I think that's the case in the US as well. There is work ongoing to reduce suicide amongst police 
because we are a vulnerable population group ultimately, not only because of what we deal with, but like you say, some of the stuff, some of the baggage that we were carrying from the days before we joined. People join the service to make a difference and often they want to make a difference because they've experienced something themselves. I've encountered quite a few police officers who were bereaved by suicide, never told the service, never mentioned it to the service that they'd lost a parent when they were a child or lost a sibling. I think it's really important as we look at reducing police suicide that we look at the whole person. We aren't just focusing on what they're doing and dealing with from a trauma point of view, but we look at their, you know, are they drinking too much? Are they taking drugs? Are they in debt? What are their relationships like? What issues has the jobs caused? But what issues have they caused in the job? Because you do get people with mental ill health or pre-existing conditions that join the service and we've got to manage them. So it must be a whole person approach. And one of the things I would say, I think it's really important is we talked earlier about how important it is to be part of something. As soon as an officer becomes not part of something, as soon as they lose their gun, as Paul would say, as soon as they are looking at a disciplinary or are looking at ill health retirement or even an injury, you know, if they're in a role which is isolating in itself, I was a dog handler briefly, and that's quite an isolating role. And if you are in a role which is not part of a team, then that we've got to pay particular attention to that and know that a dog handler, for example, who, who can't go operational because of an injury, loses his dog. The dog is given to somebody else. And, and that's such a bond that, you know, it's really important to recognise the impact of a disciplinary notice or a notice that says, so you've been off sick for six months, you're going on to half pay. That arriving through the door with no preface, with no explanation beforehand can be really devastating for people. It can be often the final straw that when you're resilient, you would take it in your stride. But when you've got depression, diagnosed or not, or when you're experiencing significant pain because of an injury on duty and you're not able to go to work, the organisation often does things unknowingly. They send a letter and they take you down to half pay. They take your warrant card, your identification off you. You lose your worth and that sense of self-worth is so important if you don't feel part of something. The organisation can cause that damage just in the clumsy way it responds, responds to some circumstances and the way it disciplines people. Some people don't deserve to carry a card. They don't deserve to be in the job. But actually losing your role and being accused of a criminal act can be devastating for somebody as well. So we just need to handle that much more carefully than the uh, examples I could give. Yeah, definitely both of you have talked a lot about what is known in an organisation. And that's a great example of you can put these processes in place around natural transitions within the workforce and different stresses but what is known in the workforce are also some of those processes that may be excused as administration but have other impacts so it's a great point to actually look at where those stress points are and what you know about your workforce and and reactions to things. Now I could probably make this a 16 part series and talk to the two of you for the next couple of weeks but I'm conscious that we should probably wrap it up soon but I wonder is there anything that you'd like to share there's some great takeaways for me, like even just what you said before, Paul, about the difference between a suicidal person and not is just that thought. That's really motivated me to be sharing that 
phrase as well, but is there something else that you want to leave us with or a, a point that we haven't covered perhaps today that you'd like to cover? Uh, one a final thought from both of you, Paul? You know, Andy touched on earlier the whole idea of being authentic. And I think this applies across every situation, not just mental health or suicide. And, and that is what we try to tell police officers, you know, when they're, when they're going into senior leadership roles, that law enforcement are the most skeptical people that exist. They make their living being skeptical and questioning everything, right? And so they can smell a mile away if you're not being authentic. I try to tell people that are get nervous speaking in front of other people or making presentations that really it's nothing more than a conversation between you and the people you're talking to. And if you're authentic and genuine, people see it and they believe that you're having a conversation. And so that if you can believe you're having a conversation, it's just a conversation. And so bringing that back around to suicide intervention, um, obviously I have a lot of conversations with people who are thinking about suicide and Andy does as well. It's just a conversation and it's, it's nothing to treat differently, just a willingness to talk about it as if you were talking about sports or talking about social activities or whatever else is going on really makes the conversation not all that uncomfortable. Of course, the stakes are, are maybe a little higher, but usually they're not. And in other words, um, you know, in assist, they teach about that river of suicide. And there's an awful long way in that river between when people first start having thoughts that maybe the world would be better off without them to that part where they're actually attempting to take their own lives. And there's an awful lot of room in there for conversation. And so I try to um, tell people, just be comfortable. It's just a conversation and only good can come out of it. So go ahead and do it. It's not something to be avoided by any means. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Similar to that, on that theme of being authentic, it took me quite a long time and probably even after training as a negotiator to be that authentic person because as a police officer, even as any individual, you carry an ego around with you. You know, I was an ego of my rank. I was an inspector, an ego of being a negotiator. And from day one of training, they told us to put the ego aside. Don't come into a negotiation with your ego. And yet inevitably you do. You want to be the person that gets the person down safely. You want to be the person that has the, the, the right words to say. But it's really important that you come with a person-centered approach and that you're compassionate and you are authentic, as we've identified. In the early days of being a negotiator, I was quite embarrassed and very self-conscious until I realized that I was more effective when I wasn't, I didn't care about the firearms team behind me or the shield team behind me who had been there hours on a point waiting for somebody to come down. And it wasn't until I became Andy the person negotiating rather than Andy the police officer negotiating that I became truly effective at what I was doing. And actually I used the word soft because I felt soft at times. I felt as if, oh, they'll laugh at me if I say that stuff. But after a while I cared not. The only person who I cared what they thought about was the person I was engaging with. The firearms team behind me, the police officers behind me, sometimes they were helpful and sometimes they were very less than helpful. But it's really important that you come as an individual. You don't come with your 
rank, with your ego, with your training, with your background. One of the um, trainers introduced me to a phrase, and negotiating in the same way as assist and safe talk is all about listening, the power of listening. And his little motto was, in fact, he put it on his business card eventually when he left the service. Listen, they are just scared. Listen, they are just scared. Whoever you're talking to, whoever is in crisis, whether that be a hardened criminal or the first-time offender or somebody who's never encountered the police service before who's simply in crisis, they are just scared. And they are so scared that their life is at risk. So it is an attitudinal change. It is about going in there with an authentic approach. And you asked Kim on the briefing about give us one example that will stick with you forever. And I struggle with that because there are several that stay with me. I'm particularly proud of what I've done since I left the service in trying to enhance the suicide prevention agenda and get people trained. But I remember standing on a bridge with a father who had children the same age as me. And he was definitely intent on taking his own life. He didn't think anybody was going to see him. He casually, or not casually, walked off to a location where he was able to take his own life. And it was only by sheer chance that somebody spotted him and called in the police. And then that man engaged with me for about six hours. And I was the most authentic person I've ever been on that occasion talking to him. And it it was almost like an out-of-body experience, listening to somebody describe his innermost demons and how he felt he'd let his family down, and how death and suicide were his only option. And for me to self-disclose and to listen empathetically and to show the level of compassion, which just sort of raised up in my own body, I could almost literally feel it taking over, to then come up with words that I was able to share with him and say that I have no idea to this day what I said, but I saw the change in his attitude. I, I saw some kind of change in his body language as a result of whatever those words say. And he came down and it will stick with me forever. You know, I I like to think I've saved life. I like to think a combination of team because it's all about team in negotiation and it's about the person at risk as well. But on that occasion, I saved that man's life simply by uttering the words, whatever they were. And those words we use in, in assist and safe talk. I can be me when I stand in front of a, a safe talk group that I'm teaching, I can share that I've experienced mental health myself. I can share that I've had feelings of dread. I can share that I've not been as good on point when my family have been ill or where I've had personal issues going on, that I'm not quite the person that should be on point. So I am authentic. And I think that's so vitally important to make a difference that if we try and pretend with somebody else, we'll be seen through from day one and we'll never build that rapport. And we won't be able to have those vital conversations that save lives. So assist has been really valuable and safe talk in delivering it, really valuable in allowing me to continue those conversations and and train the new generation of police officers and other services that are coming behind us. So thank you for the opportunity to tell you about that. Thank you so much. That's such a powerful example. And the fact that both of you your final thoughts around authenticity, I think that means so much. And I really appreciate what you've shared. It's so interesting to hear about your professional backgrounds, but also the insights that you've had since and across the years, both on your insights into the workforce and how that operates and the cultural change and reduction in stigma, but also your personal reflections. So thank you so much for your time and insights today. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will too. Thank you very much. Thank you.
aqui. enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.